Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 467 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. It's another Monday, August good times. Um, Today's episode is an interview I did with author Emily Levesque about her book, The Last Stargazers. Emily is a professor and an astronomer, and her book is all about um, basically stories from other astronomers, which is really fun. We had a really good conversation. This was at Midwinter, which was back in like, wait, Midwinter, PLA? I don't even remember anymore when this was sometime back in February-ish, January, time has no meaning anymore. None. Um, I will say, though, that when we were recording this, because we did it in person, we were at the conference hall, um, and they were still setting up the show, so there's some background noise, which, you know, we normally get with these in-person ones, um, but just letting you all know in advance. Um, What else? So... If you want to get a hold of us, of course, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on social at Twitter, not at Twitter, on Twitter, on Twitter and Instagram at ProBookNerds. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. If you listened to our Saturday bonus episode, which was an interview with Tim Mason about his book, The Darwin Affair, you know all about Big Library Read, which is our global ebook club that started um, oh, today, starts today. So along with reading The Last Stargazers, you can go to your library's website and pick up The Darwin Affair, um, which will be available between now and August 17th without wait lists or holds. You can go to biglibraryread.com to join the discussion board and, and talk to other people about um, Tim Mason's book. So if you did not listen to our bonus episode, be sure to check that out, which we had up on Saturday. I think that's everything. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to, like, bore you too much with nonsense housekeeping things um, and would much rather let you guys get to this interview that I did with Emily Levesque on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Hi everyone, this is Jill and with me I have Emily Levesque. She's an assistant professor at the University of Washington's astronomy department, and she has a new book out called The Last Stargazers. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your book? Yes, my book is about what it's like to be a professional astronomer and work at telescopes. And what made you want to write this book? (laughs) I had realized from talking to lots of people about my job that People are super interested in astronomy. They love seeing like gorgeous Hubble photos and hearing about black holes and weird things in space. But not a lot of people know the in and outs of what astronomers do. 
And that's not really that surprising. There's, you know, 50,000 professional astronomers in the world out of seven and a half billion people, so we're a little rare. Mm -hmm. And I knew from talking to my colleagues that there were some amazing stories about how people travel to the ends of the Earth to work at telescopes and study the far reaches of the universe. And the human stories seemed just as interesting to me as sort of the science story. So I wanted a book that could tell both. And how did you choose which stories to feature in it. I'm sure you had a ton to choose from. Yeah, the book is, I think there's at least as many stories on the cutting room floor as wound up in the book. Um, I interviewed over a hundred of my colleagues. I have, a, each interview was on the order of an hour, so I have hours and hours of great stories from people. And I tried to pick some of the really spectacular ones along with sort of examples of things that would be familiar to all of us. That if somebody was reading this going, what's something that probably a lot of astronomers have done or experienced that they'd see examples of those in the book? Are there any particular stories that really, um, well, I guess I have two questions as a follow to that. Are there any stories that are included that are some of your favorites? And are there any that did not make it in that you wish could have been? Oh, those are great questions. <laughs> um, I always have trouble picking a favorite story. But one, I used to ask my interviewees, what's your favorite story? Or what sort of like third hand, half true legend have you heard about the field? And one of the most common answers was, have you heard the one about the telescope that got shot? So there's a telescope in Texas that has six uh, bullet holes in its big mirror because at some point an employee decided to shoot at the telescope. Like you do. And the full story of that is in the book, but it's absolutely become a legend in the field. That is amazing. Um, in terms of stories left on the cutting room floor that didn't get included, I really tried to include either in detail or in spirit all of my favorites. Um, I talked to a lot of astronomers that observed at telescopes half a century ago when how we did our research was really different. Um, now we can operate telescopes remotely, we can sit in a nice warm room in the building or we don't even have to be at the building at all. And I talked to people who would be out literally tied to the telescope, shivering mm -hmm. all night and none of those people want to do that again. <laughs> Nobody's sorry that that's gone, but everyone had sort of a favorite sense memory almost right. of being out there in the cold, smelling like the machine oil in the dome and seeing the stars above them. And I have a handful of those in the book, but it was really amazing how many versions of that story I got told. I think it's probably just one of those things that comes with, uh, as our world adapts and technology gets better, you sort of lose something about that. And I could see not wanting to go out there and be shivering in the cold anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but there was probably, you know, this very visceral feeling in that moment that you don't get when you're doing it remotely. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the key themes that I try to get across in the book, that the way that we do astronomy is changing and where the stargazers are in the process of astronomy is changing. And it's great for the science to be able to do things remotely and mm -hmm. digitally, and we're learning incredible things about the universe. I don't think anybody is saying, no, it was better back in the day right. when we were doing it the old fashioned way, but they are great stories. So part of my motivation with the book was just someone should write these down and somebody should capture this odd little corner of science before it vanishes completely. Um, when you sat down before we started recording, you said that it was a good day in astronomy and I actually wanted to know if there are any recent discoveries that have you really excited about where the field is going. So I'm really excited about something that I think a lot of your listeners might have heard about in the news over the past couple months. 
Um, right now, the, it's a great time to still catch some of the winter constellations. And mm. one constellation that a lot of people know is Orion. Mm -hmm. um, you can find it by looking for the three stars right in a row in the belt. And Betelgeuse, which is the bright red star in Orion's left shoulder, has been behaving really strangely in the past oh. few months. It's normally one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's super easy to find because it's so bright and it's so red. And it started getting dimmer a few months ago and nobody really knew why. Like, noticeably dimmer. You could go out with your eyes and just see, wow, this star looks weirdly different. Yeah. And we're really not used to the sky changing on a time scale like that that we all notice. Correct, um, yeah. Betelgeuse is actually a type of star called a red supergiant. So it's a massive star that's nearing the end of its life and getting ready to die and we think make a supernova. Mm -hmm. And it's the exact type of star that I study. So my uh, colleagues and I just all like jumped into high gear and started running to whatever telescopes we could get to. And I talk about this in the book. Um, I called a colleague and said, you know, can you squeeze in 15 minutes on a night that's been assigned to you at the telescope for other science just to get a look at this star? And he did. Um, we were able to learn some really cool things about the physics of Betelgeuse right now. Um, we just published a research paper on that. Um, it went on the internet this morning. Oh, wow. And Betelgeuse itself got really dim, but is getting brighter again. So if it's clear here tonight, or if it's clear really where anybody is when they're listening to this, it's a good time to go see Betelgeuse and just kind of check on how it's doing. There you go. Yeah. Um, speaking of writing, I imagine writing this book, which is for more of a popular audience, is probably different than a lot of the papers you write. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so what sort of was that experience like? I found it really enjoyable. Um, the research process isn't all that different, except instead of sort of gathering um, mathematical data and physics, I was gathering stories. But the actual writing process was different. Um, this is my first popular science book. It's my first book for a general audience, but I love writing and it was a really wonderful chance to kind of stretch those muscles and see how I could do as a storyteller and see how I could do sort of bringing the people and the science of astronomy to life. And it's a very different type of writing than a research paper or right. I've written like academic books and textbooks, but this was for sure the most fun. <laughs> That's always important. That's always good. Um, and when you're talking about uh, Betelgeuse, I, I feel that, you know, when we look at sort of this idea of exploration in our world, there's kind of two areas that are, there's still a lot we don't know about, which is sort of the sea and the sky. Mm -hmm. And the sea, of course, like the ocean, there's a finite space there. Like mm -hmm. we know that. When it comes to outer space, we don't know where it ends. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just kind of keeps going and we don't know, you know, like all of the mysteries that are out there. This is a, this is a somewhat loaded question, but do you ever think humans will get to a place, obviously not in our lifetime, but get to a place where they have the technology to actually reach and see all that there is out in outer space? It's an excellent question. Um, first of all, as a just like general science nerd, I'll say it's, I find how little we know about the ocean also fascinating. I know. And like, oh God, it's so cool to talk to people that study that. But in terms of studying space, it's a great question to ask because there's what we literally see. There's the reach of our telescopes and thinking about it in the opposite direction, um, the light that's arriving here on Earth for us to observe is coming toward us as fast as it can. Yep. But we have an estimate of how old the universe is, so there is light that simply hasn't reached us yet because it's too far away. So 
there's the technological challenge of seeing how far we can see as we build big telescopes, we can see further into space, we can see dimmer, fainter, and more distant objects. But there's also kind of the reach of our physics and the reach of what we understand scientifically. So people are trying to explain things like the expansion of the universe and what dark matter is mm -hmm. and every little question we might have about black holes. And each of those things, as we learn little bits more about each of those topics, I feel like that's us extending our reach a little bit. And astronomers are certainly trying to answer these really big questions and get a better grip on, you know, how we see the whole universe. And now we're going to take a quick break for a word from this week's sponsor. With libraries, schools, and bookstores shut down, how do you keep your kids learning and growing? Books from Literati, the number one book club for kids, are the best place to start. Literati is the subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and interesting books for your kids by delivering great stories straight to your doorstep. Literati knows that home deliveries will be critical in meeting your need for uplifting educational materials in the coming weeks, and reading books together will help create a time of adventure and bonding for your family. It has real educational benefits. Kids who read books have better vocabularies and longer attention spans. I have given my nephew a Literati book box, um, and the books are so adorable. They come with little stickers and uh, art with his name on it. It's just... Uh, it's adorable. For a limited time, go to literati.com slash probooknerds for 25% off your first two orders. This is their best offer available anywhere. But to get it, you have to go to literati.com slash probooknerds for 25% off your first two orders. Again, that's literati.com slash probooknerds. I remember it was just a couple months ago with the black hole, they took a photo of it. Is that what that was? Yes. So in, it was in April of 2019. Oh my gosh, was it that long yes, ago? Yes, but no, it feels like yesterday because I remember, I remember waiting. Ooh, okay. I remember waiting for that news because we knew it was coming and I had agreed to talk to a reporter about it. So I decided to watch the press release and I was sitting in like a Starbucks at six in the morning because I didn't want to wake up. Uh, my husband right and was just I knew that I would just be making noise on the phone and that press release came out and they released this photo of a black hole and I know people were joking about it being a letdown because it kind of looks like a fuzzy orange it, donut yeah but I saw it and I very nearly started crying because being fascinated by black holes when I was really little is part of what got me into science and into astronomy. And that's probably true of so many astronomers when we were getting the closest we'd ever gotten to looking at one. But um, the story of how they took that photo alone is just outlandish. And I do, I touch on that a bit in the book. Um, that's something that, probably with most of these stories, that's something that could go on forever and ever right but it was an immense human endeavor to take that photo oh for sure yeah. I think black holes are just fascinating just oh, yeah. this like, and that's I mean I'm not a sciencey person at all but there's something about black holes that I just find so fascinating and I think it's because again it goes back to that like not necessarily knowing like what it looks like <laughs> what's there and so to see that picture I mean I could see I had no expectation of what it looks like, but for someone who is really into it, 
I can I can understand the the wanting to like cry at seeing that yeah. yeah and I think that's part of what I try to get at in this book too that everybody thinks space is cool and everybody will think about black holes and just go well that's weird and kind of brain bending and how do they work right and then you talk to some of the scientists involved in taking that photo and for example there was a team that spent an entire winter in Antarctica to be at the South Pole telescope and operate it as part of this endeavor to take that picture and winter over in Antarctica is quite a sort of adventure which I do talk about a bit in the book and they had to be there working at the telescope um, when they finished the data they had to ship the data back to I think it was Cambridge on like the first flight out of Antarctica like carefully packed and yeah. people were getting the data so excited about it um, and I don't think it's too hard for people to imagine somebody being excited enough about something like a black hole to do something like voluntarily stay in Antarctica for a whole winter. Sure. Yeah. And I remember seeing a documentary actually once about people who stay in Antarctica over the winter and I'm like, that's a whole that's a whole lifestyle you gotta commit to to be down there. Oh yeah. There. Um, I've actually never gotten to go to Antarctica and I would love to, but like maybe not for the winter at first. I know, I mean yeah, <laughs> just like what what that experience is like. I, the the documentary, which of course I can't remember right now, was really interesting. Um, you talk about how black holes were one of the things you that got you into astronomy. And of course, I have to ask what it's like being a woman in the sciences and sort of that experience because I'm sure there are challenges that you've had to face over the course of your career um, in a fairly male-dominated field. So it's a really interesting time to be a woman in astronomy and to be answering that question because it's still a male-dominated field, but the percentage of women in astronomy is growing and there's lots of efforts in trying to keep that going. And one thing is um, getting women to enter the field and then it's making the field a place where women want to stay and where women can thrive. Um, I don't think it's hard to convince any nine-year-old, regardless of gender, that black holes are cool. Um, True. So True. That, that was never my problem. But it's been interesting to see how gender plays into science today. Um, I write in my book about the women who were um, astronomers, I want to say about half a century ago, and becoming some of the first women to observe at telescopes when women were not allowed to be the lead astronomers mm -hmm. at telescopes. And they found a way and did it anyway, but they had all these extra hurdles to clear. Um, some of those women were my direct mentors or advisors, and they really made a big difference in the experience that I had in the field. Now I think a lot of it is a lot more subtle, and it's very similar to any sort of low-grade sexism that you'll see anywhere. I don't think it's any better or worse in a field like astronomy where you'll get passed over for an opportunity or someone will make a comment and it's not really obvious. You sort of wonder, well, are they just being a jerk or right. is this because I'm a woman? Am I totally reading something into it that isn't there? And that's sort of just a little extra asterisk that a lot of women have to deal with. But I've been lucky that a lot of my um, colleagues and a lot of my, um, like my department chair and our dean and my university president are all women. And I think it makes a difference having oh, women sure. in leadership positions. And I've had a lot of colleagues, regardless of gender, that have been really excellent and supportive. So that's let me have a really good experience. And I just want everybody to have an experience like that. I've, I have friends that did not have that same kind of experience. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. So on that note, you know, if there are any parents listening who have little girls who are interested in the mm -hmm. sciences and astronomy in particular, do you have any advice for them on ways to nurture that? Um, 
It's interesting because I think one thing that helped me when I was a kid is that my parents never really treated me like a girl, and they never really treated my brother like a boy. We were just kids that were into stuff. Right. And whether it was dinosaurs or astronomy or wanting to be a ballerina, even though I was a terrible dancer, um, they were just like on board and ready to support being enthusiastic about something. And that kind of separated gender from my interests for me, which meant that my interests could just be whoever I was as a person. Um, and then as a student, I was taking things like advanced math classes, and I was sometimes in the minority gender-wise in science or math classrooms. And it was just nice to get that reminder from them of like, no, that doesn't matter. You're a person that's interested in this, and that's great. So that's really cool. That was really nice. So we are, of course, at a library conference. Yeah. It's your first book conference, I My think. first book conference, yes. Are you a big reader? I am, yeah. What kind of books do you like to read? So, I was joking with my mom, who's a retired librarian this morning, uh, about this because I will read anything good. I'll read anything that I like. Um, she was a children's librarian, so she kept me very well supplied with um, good young adult mm -hmm. literature, which I sometimes enjoy reading more than adult literature. Just, stuff. It's good. It's very relaxing. Yeah. Um, I do spend a lot of time reading academic papers or fairly kind of brain straining stuff and sometimes it's just nice to get told a good story. Yeah. Um, but I I have an affection for sort of sci-fi and fantasy books. I was a big Harry Potter kid. Um, I still look for books like that that can sort of build a good world and tell a good story and I'm always happy to find new ones. Um, when I was starting to write this book, I started reading more popular nonfiction just to sort yep. of learn from excellent writers about how to tell a good story. But th my tastes are pretty broad. I'm also a very chronic rereader. I love rereading and rereading books over and over because every time through I find something new or I notice something a little different. Same. So, yeah. I, I do the same. I know a lot of people don't like rereading books, but I definitely have favorites that I try to read every year or every couple of years. Yeah. So what are some of your favorite rereads? Um, I have done Harry Potter rereads a lot. Um, more recently, let me think what was my last reread. Um, there's a book series called The Name of the Wind, which is young. Yeah. Oh, I'm very familiar with I've, that one. <laughs> I've reread his first couple books a couple times, mostly because I love the way he uses words. Yep. Um, there's a humor writer that I really like reading, um, Irma Bombeck. And I love the way that she captures sort of the absurdity of situations. Mm -hmm. And it was a humor style that I would uh, love to aspire to because there's some really absurd details of my job and of life as an astronomer. At some right. point you're like, I'm on a mountain in the middle of nowhere trying to catch light from a galaxy five billion miles away and I can't because it's windy. And that's that's an objectively goofy situation. That is. And I think being able to laugh about it keeps you from taking yourself too seriously right. and kind of helps you see the things that are unique and interesting about it. So. And of course, you write a book about it and everybody else's stories like that. Yeah. Um, I do have to ask, what's your Hogwarts house? Um, Ravenclaw. That would have been totally. my guess. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, mm -hmm. had to be I'm a Slytherin. It's fine. Um, <laughs> um, my last question is, what do you hope readers take away from reading The Last Stargazers? I think a big reason that I wrote the book is to put a human face on astronomy. It can seem like a really remote and fantastical and I think sometimes kind of cold field, this mm -hmm. idea of like there's a big unfeeling universe out yeah. there. And I think it's good for people to remember that astronomy and really all science is done by people 
Um, I think especially today, it's good to recognize the human element and the human motivations behind research. And I'm hoping that people read it and learn about how astronomy is done and learn a few cool things about the universe, but also learn about astronomers and mm -hmm. recognize themselves in it. That we're studying a very um, unique field, but we're also working night shifts and we have sometimes really annoying commutes on snowy roads <laughs> up to telescopes and very frustrating days at work and yeah. just amazing days at work where we love what we do just like anybody else. So I'm hoping that it makes scientists in a kind of fantastical field seem more real. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Emily, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.